Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, who does what in cyber gets clearer at DHS, bridging the valley of death in the defense industrial base and securing the Defense Department's supply chain. It's Wednesday, October 4th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored by Booz Allen Hamilton. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. A cyber contract that could be worth up to $6 billion over 10 years is coming from the Air Force. Its EC2 program will include a small business pool and an unlimited pool. The pre-solicitation notice says the deadline for responses is October 23rd. The Army's Google Workspace is officially live. Army Chief Information Officer Raj Iyer says Army users that don't need the full Army 365 solution will use the service. The Army's Enterprise Cloud Management Agency will manage the service. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Leaders from the Defense Department, CISA, and lots of other government agencies are coming to Cyber Talks this year. It's happening Thursday, October 20th at the Waldorf Astoria in downtown D.C. You can find a link to the agenda and registration in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Department of Homeland Security is delineating its cyber responsibilities in a new fact sheet out today. The fact sheet spells out the jobs of each of the organizations inside DHS that touches cyber. Bob Kolaski is senior vice president at Exeger. He's former director of the National Risk Management Center at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Bob, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. And thank you for calling my attention to this fact sheet. Your former organization, CISA, is called out in this fact sheet. Before we get into the individual organizations and the way DHS is shaping their or presenting their jobs, is there a significance to the fact that this fact sheet comes out at all? Welcome, Bob. Hey, Francis. Great to be back with you and, and always, always enjoy the conversation. I, I think, you know, that the fact sheet, the timing of the fact sheet, I think most obviously is tied to the start of Cybersecurity Awareness month, and you had yesterday uh, Secretary Mayorkas and Director Easterly and Undersecretary Silvers from DHS all getting together and talking about some of DHS's cybersecurity priorities. So so I think they took advantage of um, the President's declaration about Cybersecurity Awareness Month to um, lay out everything that DHS is doing across the cybersecurity mission, which Secretary Mayorkas has made clear from from, since he assumed the job is a priority of his, not, not just priority of the cybersecurity infrastructure security agencies, but a priority of the department as a whole. And, you know, with with a month plus plus some ongoing um, speculation about potential regulatory activity in some of the areas where DHS has responsibility, I, I think uh, providing some clarity to constituents on, on what the department's doing is, it will be useful. There's a broader message here too, Bob, that I think is important and, and useful for the folks like us that care about cybersecurity in the federal government. And that is that a lot of folks in and out of government have been saying over the last several years with the advancement of the Cyber Solarium Commission recommendations, some of them becoming law and the establishment of new positions. There have been a lot of questions about who owns what. And it strikes me as a positive contribution to that discussion for DHS, at least to say, this is our stuff. This is what we do. And this is the scope of the work that we have to do. Am I reading that right? Do you think, Bob? Yeah, that's right. And, and I think, you know, that also comes on top of the, you, you mentioned the Solarium Commission, but, the, you know, one of the Solarium Commission's key recommendations that has been implement, implemented is the 
uh, establishment of the Office of the National Cyber Director and Chris Inglis and his team over there. And, you know, one of Chris's jobs as National Cyber Director is, is to make sure that those lanes are defined within the federal government. So I, I'm sure that this document that DHS released was cleared and, and involved and reviewed by the Office of the National Cyber Director. So you have somebody from the Executive Office of the President signing off on how DHS talks about what they do as part of the overall enterprise. And you can look for other, you know, hopefully look for other cabinet agencies. Department of Defense has key cyber roles. Department of Justice has key cyber roles. Department of Commerce on down the list to, to further off of those clar- clarifications. You know, ownership might not be the right word all the time. You know, sometimes it's, it's collaboration across mission spaces, but clarity of definition of, of who's responsible for what and when they're shared responsibilities, how they work together, helps uh, facilitate more effective federal cybersecurity. I appreciate the, the rhetorical reference, and I will be more careful to refer to it as collaboration uh, in the future rather than ownership. Uh, I, I take your point. Um, anything here in, among any of these components, CISA, Office of Policy, Cyber Safety Review Board, TSA, Coast Guard, Secret Service, um, ICE's Homeland Security Investigations, Office of the Chief Information Officer at DHS, anything delineated among any of these organizations that struck you as new or different or I hadn't seen it before, or is the importance of this the explicit delineation of each of those roles? Yeah, you know, even going back 10 years now, those agencies were all part of something that at the time Deputy Secretary Jane Holt Lute had convened at DHS, which was a deputy secretary-led process to regularly um, collaborate on cybersecurity. So it's not that the agencies mentioned are new to the cybersecurity game. Um, Again, it's defining it publicly and and, and realizing that roles. But but what I do see that that's you know well maybe not dramatically new yesterday but but is worth following is you know the roles of TSA and, and Coast Guard called out in in that um, in that press release and in, in that description and thinking about what TSA and Coast Guard and then probably the DHS Office of Policy will be doing in the future to continue to re- review whether there needs to be additional regulations in place or the um, industries that, that they have some regulatory authority over. You know, going back now more than a year, TSA has taken regulatory action in cyberspace coming out of the Colonial Pipeline around pipeline cybersecurity, um, along with some rail cybersecurity activity. TSA obviously has some responsibilities in the aviation space. And you hear talk about the Coast Guard more actively forcing requirements in the maritime space. So you see DHS, and, and this is why the Office of Policy is involved, you see DHS exploring whether there are, they are fully, the department is fully using its levers to put requirements on industry to do more in cyberspace, particularly around the areas where the department does have regulatory authority. And, and I think that's going to be a story to watch in the next six months. The uh, language uh, regarding TSA is this. TSA's efforts include a combination of cybersecurity assessments and engagements, stakeholder education, publication of cybersecurity guidance and best practices, and use of its regulatory authority to mandate appropriate and durable cybersecurity measures. That shouldn't come as news to the aviation, intermodal, surface transportation, uh, highway motor carriers, freight passenger railroad carriers, et cetera, that um, the agency cites in this language, should it, Bob? No, it shouldn't. But, but so far, TSA has largely used that for under emergency authority, um, saying that there's an emergency threat that, that, needs to, that needs to apply. 
comply regulatory requirements. One thing I'll be watching is whether TSA is going to um, do more than just emergency regulatory regulatory action and also and, and establish sort of a more sustained long-term regulatory framework. Sure, industry is very interested in that. And, you know, when I was there, certainly lots of feedback about the pros and cons of that and, um, you know, thinking through what the legal framework for doing that within the department and, and making sure that industry um, does get does get taken into account if TSA takes more authority. And regarding the Coast Guard, the fact sheet says this, in its role as a military law enforcement and regulatory agency, the Coast Guard has broad authority to combat cyber threats and protect U.S. maritime interests both domestically and abroad. Coast Guard continually promotes best practices, identifies potential cyber-related vulnerabilities, implements risk management strategies, and has in place key mechanisms for coordinating cyber incident responses. That's probably a higher profile, well, it's definitely a higher profile uh, cyber job than I understood the Coast Guard's uh, cyber responsibility to be. Is that something that, again, taking your point that this isn't really new material, that explicit statement, though, strikes me as something that I haven't heard before. Yeah, I I would interpret it. And I, you know, I read some of the that coming out of the, the press Yesterday, in Secretary Mayorkas and colleagues, I, I would interpret it that the Coast Guard is looking at um, ways to be more muscular in, in its enforcement around cybersecurity practices and, and encouraging foreign use of guidance. You know, the, the Coast Guard, in a lot of ways, owns a lot of elements of port security, and the Coast Guard owns a lot of elements of maritime safety, and, and they work regularly with, with at the ports and shippers on making sure that certain things are done to prevent terrorism and to keep states the like you know i think they're indicating and i i would be looking at you know doing the same thing to keep ports in, in maritime environment safe digitally bob i hope you have a great rest of the of national Cybersecurity awareness month and i hope you celebrate safely my friend one of the best months of the year francis You can find a link to DHS's cyber fact sheet in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on Thursday's show, The Cyber Landscape at the Labor Department. The DOL Chief Information Security Officer, Paul Blahush, is on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. You can find that show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and always at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Defense Innovation Unit's asking commercial industry to help it test and evaluate hypersonics. DIU believes commercial companies can help the Pentagon move faster on cutting-edge technologies. Brian McCarthy's Vice President for Tech Scouting and Ventures at Booz Allen Hamilton. Booz Allen Hamilton sponsors today's Daily Scoop podcast. Brian, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. What's the connection look like today? Where are we now in that connection between commercial technology, especially companies that are just learning how to do business with the department, and the bureaucracy that is the Department of Defense? Welcome. Thank you, Francis. Appreciate it. Um, and, and thanks for having us at Booz Allen to be a part of this. Um, I think we're still in its infancy. Um, the reality is when I moved out to San Francisco in late 2014, I shared a, a small corner office floor with, with uh, some of the early folks at DIU, um, Raj Shaw, David Rosside, Lauren Daly, um, pillars in our community, like absolute stalwarts. The, the, the issue, though, is for 
every step we take forward in accessing commercial tech, dual use tech, whichever um, phrase you want to use, um, there are three steps backwards. And, and that's frustrating, obviously, I think, for people inside the building, um, inside the venture community, inside the startup community, and even for large prime systems integrators like us. And, and it is going to take an entire ecosystem to beat our adversaries. And right now, um, you know, there are many different organizations trying to solve this problem. Um, the scale is just so big, right? And so for every major win at, let's say, SOCOM or, you know, in the Air Force, um, there are often many programs that are two steps back, right? And that's what's frustrating. It sounds like the challenge is the growth is linear, not exponential, at a time that we need exponential growth to be able to reach the scale that you're talking about. Well, I like to stick to facts. Um, <laughs> the reality are the facts is there's, you know, one public dual-use company that has come out of Silicon Valley in the last 10 years. There are two probably um, on the precipice uh, between Shield and Anderil, who are amazing, amazing, have amazing tech founders, but also have a, amazing tech and, and software development. Um, you know, the next two years are going to be pretty tough. So I'm, I, I'm guessing it won't be in the next two years, uh, considering the markets today. Um, we are not seeing exponential growth. If you asked any one of their founders, and, you know, we talk to about 100 founders a month, the deal sizes are just not large enough uh, to bridge that valley of death. Mm -hmm. And there's no amount of private capital money, venture money, et cetera, um, that are going to help them get through this. It'll just dilute their shares. They need access to contracts. And, and by contracts, I mean, um, you know, seven-figure contracts. The Pentagon talks on an ongoing basis about trying to bridge that valley of death. Congress is aware of the problem <clears throat> now, too. What are the, still the holdups that remain? Are they still the same ones that existed, let's say, three, five years ago um, that just haven't gotten fixed or has some of the repairs that have happened created new ones? Yeah. I, I would think about this in three different ways. There was a acquisition problem. There is a money problem and neither of those are important as the third problem, which is integration. We simply don't have the ability right now from the startup community to integrate into the major systems. And I mean the major programs of record. And that's one of the reasons why we started our fund. On the acquisition side, everybody's talked about this at length. We need more vehicles and serious capital from you know, the Defense Department and other USG customers, it's not just DOD. This, this the topic is typically addressed at DOD, mm -hmm. but the national security community and, and large civil agencies need to take this seriously. Um, and I think several are doing it. But the second one, which is there's, there's, I wouldn't call it dumb money, but there is still plenty of money out there that hasn't been wiped out. You know, whether you look at the two trillion wiped out in crypto, there's lots of money and investors who want to go into this space, who want to solve national security and DOD problems. Um, but the third is the hardest. The third is just, quite frankly, there is not enough startups who have developed tech far enough and or high up enough the TRL scale to get integrated into major defense systems. Mm -hmm. And so that's a challenge for the entire community. It's not just 
on the startups, but it's on the prime integrators. And we think we have an ability to help there. What is the holdup for the integrators? And what is the holdup for the companies that the integrators want to integrate? Yeah, with respect to the holdup, I mean, so we've been scouting non-traditionals for seven years on contract for many agencies. Um, from a contract perspective, bringing them onto Booz Allen contracts as opposed to, let's say, uh, OTAs or Sibber, you know, direct to startup, um, that has worked very well for us. So the holdup on our side, I wouldn't say is um, anything cataclysmic. One of the things we wanted to do is put our money where our mouth is. We want to bet on some of these technologies that we believe are going to help some of our own strategic pillars, AI, cyber defense. 5G, quantum, et cetera. The larger holdup, I think, within with respect to the, the community as a whole is there are a lot of startups out there that just aren't good enough, quite frankly, to be in some of these major programs. And I think the tide rolling out with, with the market going down is going to really determine who is in here for the long run and who who is not. Um, but I do believe that there are lots of people who want to dedicate a tremendous amount of resources to trying to solve this. Um, it's just multifaceted. Yeah. It's going to take some time. Tell me how this uh, capital fund works yeah. and tell me how it connects sure. the pieces together because it seems to me there's three important pieces here. There is the startup type company, there's you as the integrator, and there is the department as your customer or the customer of the of the startup. Yeah. How do they all fit together? So I'll start with the mechanics of the fund. Yeah. So we are going to fund five, seven companies a year across four domains. Those four domains are areas that we believe we've got flywheel contracts and we can win in. We've got a talent base to help these startups integrate downrange into major systems on Booz Allen contracts. That's artificial intelligence. <clears throat> that is cyber defense. That is what we call digital battle space, but anything that touches the kill chain. And then a fourth bucket that's kind of deep tech where we are working you know, exclusively on edge tech such, such as you know, XR, 5G, quantum, digital twin, et cetera. The mechanics of the dollars, though, is $100 million off our balance sheet. We will fund deal by deal by deal, okay? So it's not $100 million moved into a separate bank account. And um, it is a very specific strategic focus. I don't have to deploy $20, $30 million of capital a year. The second piece is, how does this help us strategically? I kind of talked about that, but we, Booz Allen, know that we need to win in you know, in the tech space, in areas that, you know, we have breadth and experience and serious development contracts. So that's why we chose the four that I just talked about. The last piece is our clients on a daily basis are asking us, this is really difficult. It is really difficult to sift through what actual tech startups and non-traditionals are good or just have something good on paper. Mm -hmm. And so part of the diligence process in our tech scouting and or ventures is we meet with founders, we meet with them every day, all day, and we kick the tires on their tech. 
So what we want to be known for is one of the best venture, corporate venture firms who does diligence. And right now, you know, if you look at the year or two prior, people were spending money without even going into data rooms. Mm -hmm. The reality is I've got a customer who can't afford that. I've got a customer who says, I need the best tech. And I need to know that it works on systems that I am putting people in difficult positions. So, you know, specifically warfighters and other people. So that concept of what's good versus what's good on paper strikes me as maybe the essence of why the dual use venture capital fund concept is really important here, because it's not just we need to find something that's excellent for the the Department of Defense or the IC or DHS or something like that. It's also got to be a practical commercial application at some point too. It, it's got to solve a problem, yeah. right? Yeah. Like um, it would be easier to almost take a financial outlook and figure out like, how am I going to make 10, 20, 100X on this company? They're working in a space that we know or we think we know three, five years from now, they're going to kill it. But the first question you got to ask yourself is, does it solve a mission problem? And if we can't dissect what that mission problem is, the requirements, or how this piece of tech is going to solve that problem, then we're actually not doing our customers any benefit. And we're not doing our corporate any benefit. Um, so, you know, I do think there is a difference between strictly financial investors and folks who are strategic investors. And we're coming at this from a strategic approach. Brian, a lot more I'd love to cover, but we're out of time. Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. You can read more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. For more than 100 years, military, government, and business leaders have turned to Booz Allen Hamilton to solve their most complex problems and support their most critical missions through emerging technology. Visit boozallen.com to learn more. With Defense Logistics Agencies working through its first major tech transformation in 25 years. Data is a key part of that transformation. George Duchak is the Chief Information Officer at the Defense Logistics Agency. He tells FedScoop's Wyatt Cash about how the transformation is going. It's important to understand that we operate within the DOD information network, the, the DODEN. And the Defense Information Systems Agency, DISA, had, and I emphasize had, provided many of our services. So we have seen our traffic shift away from our direct connections to the DISA data centers and move to our cloud access points, CAPs, and our NIPR, the non-classified IP uh, routing gateways. So right now we're really in uh, three major cloud providers. We're in AWS, Azure, and Oracle clouds, and roughly 94-ish percent of all of our applications are in the clouds, those clouds right now. And by the end of September, we will not, emphasis on not, have any of our business applications hosted on-prem in DLA data centers. We would have moved all those to the cloud and we would have closed uh, by the end of September, 23 of our 23 data centers. So as a result of this traffic shift, uh, we've taken steps to upgrade our bandwidth over the past few years. We've gone from uh, one gigabit per second to three, and now we're at 10 gigabits per second on our NIPA, NIPR and uh, uh, Nippernet and DISA provided cloud uh, circuits within the Doden. We also uh, have increased uh, the resources available to our network components within the cloud hosting environment due to this increased load. This means that we've upgraded each of our components along the path from on-prem all the way to the cloud, meaning our routers or firewalls, 
our switches are all now 10 gigabit per second upgrades. Additionally, uh, because we are concerned about resiliency, uh, we have path diversity, so we have multiple paths uh, for this. So another key shift for security reasons was the adoption of uh, application delivery controllers, advanced application firewalls, uh, intrusion prevention systems, uh, let's see, reverse uh, web proxy services in our cloud environment. And all these uh, support the security enclaves that were moved from inside DLA to the cloud for applications that we've moved to the cloud. Uh, these were added in the cloud environment to streamline traffic flows and to realize some performance gains, uh, albeit modest, over on-prem systems. <laughs> Finally, I know this seems like a long answer. Uh, we've also increased uh, our support uh, staff to manage these additional workloads uh, to support this hybrid cloud environment that we have. Basically, though, we've really just shifted uh, labor from what DISA used to do to now what we're doing in-house. Well, that's really a remarkable migration story, one of the most in, um, uh, comprehensive that I've heard in quite some time. So thank you for sharing that. Um, as you look forward from here, what are your top priorities now over the next year to um, improve the performance or the scalability of your networks? And, and I'm curious, how will cost versus value play into your acquisition plans? Yeah, good, good questions. Uh, we've taken numerous steps over the past year just to increase the core capacity and provide uh, you know, that support to our cloud environments. And I mentioned a lot of these things in, in the previous question in terms of hardware upgrades, circuit upgrades, things like that. So in addition to those previous mentioned upgrades, we're also conduct, uh, conducting a hardware technical refresh of our wide area network, the WAN, uh, network components, as well as those uh, circuits to our remote. And those, when I say remote, the generally more austere, you know, off the mainstream type locations. Remember, we're a global uh, organization and we operate in some very austere locations. So our WAN circuit modernization is focused on the elimination of uh, legacy TDM technology. I know it's 1990s technology. Uh, and we're finally upgrading it. So we're uh, getting out of the TDM business and moving to a DISA offering uh, called Commercial Ethernet Gateway uh, Circuit Offering. So, you know, recall we operate within the Doden and we have to purchase our circuits and their services from DISA. So in many of our austere locations, TDM was what was available at the time. We didn't have a choice. Uh, but so now since uh, CEG is available, we're upgrading. And in most cases, the DISA CEG circuits offer a cost and value advantage over these legacy circuits and other available options. The CEG circuits, however, are a more cost effective solution when viewed from a dollar per unit of bandwidth lens, but the costs do vary depending on locations. I mentioned a lot of our austere locations and the cost is still very expensive and it's really a supply and demand thing. We, we get more bandwidth and it's uh, faster and more reliable, but there's not a whole lot going to those uh, locations. So since there isn't a lot of supply, you pay for more of it if you're demanding more of it. So. Absolutely. Um, and then what additional steps are you taking to build in greater security protections into your networks? And, I'm intrigued as well, as you mentioned, with all these austere locations, you've got such a diversity of suppliers and sources. How do you, how do you manage all that? 
Yeah, this is an exceptionally important question. You know, nothing works without a strong foundation of security. And the cyber-based domain is one of five recognized warfighting domains. But unlike the other four, there's never a ceasefire. We are, you know, engaged every day uh, in that domain. On any given day, the DLA network and its applications are subject to countless cyber attacks uh, with the intent by a willing and focused adversary to either uh, disrupt our operations, cause harm to our warfighter, cause harm to our industry partners, and in doing so, cause harm to our nation. So we remain vigilant against the cyber uh, space threats, and we validate cybersecurity protections for our networks or cyber uh, secure configurations for critical business systems, which are foundational uh, to our operations, to include backup and disaster recovery capabilities, supporting the uh, network infrastructure, the intrusion detection prevention and for forensic tools. So network access controls are a key component of our security protection, and we're looking to modernize that approach as well as we build in those additional components uh, to get us toward you know, the zero trust architecture. Tying this back to cloud, migration to the cloud, however, does increase our cybersecurity resilience posture by providing a more robust uh, and a more resilient con uh, continuity of operations. The enterprise cloud offers failover times of infrastructure uh, because of degradation, because of operationalities, et cetera. Uh, and in general, the, the DOD cloud instances are walled off from commercial cloud instances uh, on those commercial clouds. So one of the things that I think that we're doing that's unique in terms of security in the cloud is we've, we've stood up a software factory at DLA mm -hmm. and we make security part and parcel to our software development pipeline using the DevSecOps approach or the DevSecOps model that I'm sure most folks are familiar with. And so we introduced security early on in our software development life cycle and it minimizes vulnerabilities, improves compliance, and brings security and operation uh, closer together. The last thing I'd like to emphasize in this whole uh, thing is that uh, let's not forget about the most fruitful attack vector the adversary has, and it's the human. <laughs> Many cybersecurity breaches are caused because of human error, uh, a click on an email to a link from a Nigerian prince or visiting a seemingly innocuous website can download malware. So we really do try to instill a culture of cyber vigilance with all of our employees. And all of our employees, I think, know how important each one of their roles is in defending our network. One click from one of our 25, 26,000 employees can set us up for disaster. Well, and then lastly, George, I was going to ask, you know, with technology evolving so quickly, one of the challenges agencies have faced is, has faced is, you know, having their uh, procurement process keep up. So tell us a little about what your agency has done or is trying to do to speed up your network modernization procurement process. And, you know, what key points are you, uh, pain points are you still experiencing? Uh, really no shortage of those and everybody tries to make uh, acquisition more efficient and faster too. So I mentioned earlier uh, that we rely on the uh, uh, on this our defense information systems agency as the circuit provider and as part of our modernization effort. Uh, previous mentioned to move away from the TDM in favor of Ethernet on, uh, on the WAN. Well, DISA has established large regional contracts with service providers and made those contracts available to us and their other customers as well. Uh, you know, so we get that buying power. Uh, the time 
from the request to the delivery of the service under this CEG construct has been noticeably faster. And under this program, uh, we really, you know, this has done a great job. So, uh, you know, uh, say hats off to DISA for doing a good job here with CEG. Uh, one of our key pay point, pain points, though, in our circuit modernization project is really the fiber cable plant, especially those last mile austere locations. Some places where we're trying to deliver cable or trying to deliver bandwidth, there just isn't fiber in the ground or the fiber in the ground is fully subscribed and there's really no capacity uh, to modernize. Mm -hmm. We also found that even if we could get to our locations because we had bandwidth in the ground or we could buy fiber or a bandwidth on fiber, our buildings and our circuits in those buildings need to be upgraded as well. So uh, we've even had some recent challenges with telecommunications providers accepting contracts to deliver this ethernet service and then them not being able to perform due to this lack of infrastructure at the uh, uh, remote or austere locations. So an infrastructure assessment and upgrade planning have to go hand in glove to deliver this ethernet uh, capability or modernization to our endpoints. So we're continuing though to utilize existing contracts wherever possible you know, to uh, procure these services. And this includes our own uh, IDIQ contract, indefinite, uh, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity, IDIQ contract. It's a, uh, called JETS, J-E-T-S, which stands for J uh, J6 uh, Enterprise Technology Services. It's a manpower type contract, as well as other government-wide uh, contracts that include uh, the one that uh, we've used quite a bit, NASA Solutions for Enterprise-Wide Procurement. It's NASA uh, SEWP, but it's pronounced NASA SOUP. Uh, GSA contracts, the DOD Enterprise Software Initiative, uh, the DOD ESI contracts and likes uh, like that. So you see, we have a lot of different contracting options to try to match to what we're trying to do. Uh, and there's, I won't say there's any shortage there, but uh, currently our biggest challenge uh, we're experiencing is in the IT supply chain. Mm. Uh, it's causing substantial delays in our hardware purchases. Uh, a couple of years ago it was typically 60 days from when we placed an order to when we received the hardware. Today, it's more like nine months from when we place wow. an order to when we actually receive an order. So that is, the contracting is actually faster than the delivery of the product right now. So uh, just to plug here, as, as long as I got your ear, uh, we are doing a follow-on to our JETS contract called JETS 2.0, cleverly named, uh, and that's in the works right now. And the timeline for JETS 2.0 solicitation will be out on the street in about nine months or around April of 23. The current JETS contract performance period ends in January 25. Shameless plug. George Duchak, the Chief Information Officer at the Defense Logistics Agency with FedScoop's Wyatt Cash. You can find a link to the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.